Hi, thanks for joining me on Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and we are in December of 2020, which means we are nearing the end of this god-awful year. And if you are listening to this, that means that you have survived the year. Congratulations. And I say that truly in earnest, not in jest, because I'm feeling very reverent today and really thinking about the people who have suffered and even died through this year. As I'm recording this, the stats on the deaths of folks who've died of COVID right now is 256,000. 256,000. I don't know that I allow myself to think about that very often, about how real that is, but I'm fe- I'm feeling it very deeply today and just... Uh, grieving, grieving with the rest of the world. I also was, I was just watching the 2020 special on Breonna Taylor. And that also made me think that even though we've talked a lot about racial justice on this show, I've not specifically said the names of some of the people who have died in 2020. And I just looked up to try to see if I could find all the names of black people who've been killed by police brutality in 2020. And it was a list that was so much longer than I even thought. And that also makes me grieve today. If you're here and you are interested in these topics, I really encourage you not just to agree with me about the fact that something has to be done, that we have to make changes, but to truly go take action. And I know it can seem very overwhelming and at times we're not sure what to do, but My guess is that any little bit helps. And so I'll be putting a couple links in the show notes of places that you can donate either your time or your money. And hopefully we can all start working together to to co-create a world that, that truly values and cares for all of us. So I just wanted to take a moment of silence for all of the lives lost in 2020. Now take a breath, shake out your shoulders, roll your head around, because we can't just wallow in the pain, right? We have to take action. So one way that you can also support this podcast, which I hope is helping us take action to make the world a better place, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcast. You can share this podcast with a friend if you think that they would like it. You can contribute to us on Patreon. And of course, you can follow us on social media. And again, I just really appreciate that you're here with us today. I am so honored to have had this conversation with today's guest. Mark Sanders is a dear mentor of mine and somebody who I'd admired from afar for a long time. And he's someone that if if you're in the field of addiction in Chicago, you know his name and you've seen him speak. And I'm honored that he thinks of me as someone as a mentee. So I appreciated this conversation so, so much. And, and I know that you will too. So let me tell you a little bit more about Mark. So Mark Sanders, LCSW, CADC, is an international speaker in the behavioral health field. He's the author of five books and has had two stories published in the New York Times bestselling book series, Chicken Soup for the Soul. So please enjoy my heartfelt conversation with Mark Sanders. 
Hello, Mark Sanders. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you, Sarah, for inviting me. Oh, my gosh. For our conversation. Yeah, I'm just embarrassed I didn't think to invite you sooner. <laughs> now is the time. Now is the time. Yeah. Well, would you like to start out by telling listeners who you are and what you do? Yes. So I'm Mark Sanders and have worked for 38 years in behavioral health. And the great majority of those 38 years, I've worked in addiction and then mental health because there's an intersection between the two. And in that work, I'm a writer. So I've written five books on recovery and I'm a storyteller. I've had stories published in the New York Times bestselling book, Chicken Soup for the Soul. I'm also an educator for 30 consecutive years from 1986 to 2016. I taught addiction studies of social work in various universities. So that's pretty much my work background. Yeah. And you are a nationally sought after speaker, I just want to mention. And I got the pleasure to meet you. I th was it through Bob Cardi? Because you had me speak at your class and yeah. Bob was supposed to speak. And so I stood in for Bob, which is ridiculous to me. Bob has also been on the show, too. So people may know who he is if they remember. He was last August, I believe. But is that that's the first time that we... That's the first time we met. Yeah. And I remember yeah. that day. I remember meeting you and seeing you and your hair and, and your tattoos and your <laughs> knowledge base. And I said to myself that Sarah's unique, that we have so much homogeneity, even in social work. So it was right. refreshing to meet you. Oh, thank you. And it's funny that my the tagline for my practice is unique therapy for unique people. And that's not an accident. <laughs> that's you. And then you came with fresh knowledge, too, that most of the students weren't taught in graduate school. Right. I mean, gosh, there's so much that we don't learn in school, but we'll probably get to all of that. But I actually am curious. I don't think I know your history and why you became a social worker and all of it. But wherever you want to start, please let us all know. So Mayor Richard J. Daly was the mayor of my youth. Mm. And he believed in the 70s, 1970s, that every teenager should have a summer job to stay out of trouble. And hmm. so at 16 years old, I was placed at an agency on the north side of Chicago called Jane Addams Center, named after the original, the first social worker. Right. And my job at 16 years old, I was a recreational specialist with children. And I realized I really liked that work. And I, I now understand why is because we were providing these recreational opportunities as adults for children. We were in their lives. We were there for them. And I realized that having grown up in a home where there was so much alcoholism and so much drug addiction, the adults were not emotionally available to us and my family. So there I was at 16, able to help kids. Mm. And at the agency Jane Addams Center, which is now Lakeview Athletic Club. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a social worker there. She was the first social worker I ever met. Mm. Her name was Arlene Rodriguez. And she had graduated from a college with a bachelor's degree in social work. And she carried a beeper. Now, let's put this in perspective. In the <laughs> 1970s, and her job was, she was a street outreach worker with gang members on the North Side. So in perspective, in the 1970s, the only people I saw who carried beepers were drug dealers, pimps, and Arlene Rodriguez, the social worker. <laughs> so because I so admired that she carried a beeper, I and, love that. And, and the courage I thought it took to, be, to work with gang members, Mm -hmm. A few years later, when I went to college, I decided I wanted to be a social worker like Arlene Rodriguez. So if you look at her career, though, for most of her career, she practiced with a bachelor's degree in social work. I happen to have spoken at Loyola, where I graduated from, and uh, during the graduation ceremony. And there she was walking across the stage 
receiving her MSW. It was one of those glorious days. So that was years later. Years later. No, that's amazing. She, she walked across the stage years later with her MSW. So I got a chance to thank her for being my role model and introducing oh me gosh. to the field of social work. That's so cool. So I get a bachelor's degree in social work and the year is 1982. And I'm standing on the corner on the south side of the city of Chicago with a diploma. I graduated early with my bachelor's degree in January. My ceremony was held in May of 82. And I had two interviews right away. And the first one was at a, a, an agency downtown Chicago with beautiful furniture. It was beautiful. And I thought, I want to get hired here. The offices <laughs> are beautiful. I have my own office. It's so beautiful. I thought about taking a Polaroid camera. Now look at what I said. Not a cell phone picture. Right, right. A Polaroid <laughs> picture and sending it to my classmates in college. I've arrived. I have a nice, shiny office in downtown Chicago. But the other option was that there was a storefront agency on the south side of Chicago, and I'm standing across the street, and I see a sign that says Youth Center. So I walk in, and it was an agency that specialized in working with teenagers who had drug problems. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I didn't want to work there because it was a storefront, and I had a cubicle, not a shiny office, but they were the ones who hired me to work in addictions with teenagers. It was January, and the building didn't have heat. Not only was it the storefront, it didn't have heat. I was freezing. What? And so I decided that the way I can distract myself from the cold is to read the books in the corner of the office. Now, mind you, I did very little study when I was in undergraduate school, but I picked up those books to stay warm. They were books about alcohol and drug addiction. And one of the books was called Another Chance by Sharon Weckscheider. She later became Sharon Weckscheider Cruz. Cruz, yes, yes. And the mm -hmm. book was about addiction in the family, these various roles. Hero, scapegoat, lost child mascot. And I'm reading this book. I'm 22 years old. And I said, oh, my God, she's talking about my family. Yeah. Home where there's addiction. And I knew I was at home. And so that's how it all began. And I read the other books and the other books. And I started learning about addiction in the family. And I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Hmm. Thank you. Do you mind sharing a little bit more? Because I'm curious. I think I could probably guess which, well, actually, first, let's tell listeners if they're not familiar with those family roles, what the family roles are. And then yeah. I'm curious which one you identified yourself as. So they said that in every family where there's addiction, you have a person who has the addiction and then you have what they call back then a primary enabler. And that would be the person who took care of the person with the addiction, right? Mm -hmm. Often and the so, spouse. Uh, often the spouse, right. Mm -hmm. and so then you have these children that come along. They said that one of them often is what we call the hero, the perfect one, the one who doesn't make a whole lot of mistakes. Their whole role is to make the family look good. By the way, I learned that in, where you have addiction in families, they often push all the kids towards perfection in order to hide the secrets. Yep. In my family, if you brought home on your report card eight A's and one B, they wouldn't say it's wonderful that you got those eight A's. Why'd you get that B and you had to be perfect? In such families that have secrets, it's ideal for the first one to be perfect like so that the other ones can fall in line. The second is called the scapegoat, according to Shane Wexider. And this is the one who comes into the family, often the middle child or the second one, who realizes they can't be as good as the first one because no one can, right? And so they wind up acting out to get attention. Negative attention is better than no attention at all. Then she talked about a role called the lost child, who comes into the world and realizes they can't be as good as the hero because who can? They're not acting out like the scapegoat, so they feel lost. They don't know what their role is. But what she said was quite interesting. So this particular child may wind up developing hobbies. 
or getting adopted by surrogate families because they don't feel as connected to what's going on. But those hobbies and mm. the surrogate families kind of protect them from some of the chaos happening in the family where there's addiction. Then she talked about a kid that comes along, often the youngest, youngest called the family mascot. They feel like they're losing their mind because they sense the tension at home, but no one's telling them what the problems are in the family. Isn't that true? There's so many families out there where the oldest siblings have more history about what's really going on than the younger ones. They often become a class clown or sort of act out or make people laugh in order to get attention, in order to get their needs met. So later in my life, my saving grace was that I had a big sister who's the smartest person that I ever met in my life. Whoever's listening to our, our talk, whoever the smartest person listening to me right now, my sister's smarter than you by one point. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, and so I always followed her. She was brilliant. I said that my big sister was like a triple threat. Brilliant, beautiful, and so talented, like the world's greatest dancer. But ironically, coming from a family that also had a great deal of domestic violence, my mother grew up witnessing violence, she would beat her all the time. Not her son, because mm. I'm her son. She was like a sexist beater. Oh, wow. But she would beat my big sister. And my mm. big sister started getting high at age 12. And she married three times in order to cope with the trauma. And she married three times. And each husband were abusive. And we believe that it began right back then when she was a girl. But she had already set the stage for me to strive. You know, the, the commercial Avis, we try harder. Mm -hmm. I was always trying to catch my sister. And at some point, I started achieving things. So I started feeling like the family hero, like my role was to make the family look good. But then the other thing that Sharon Wexard has said is sometimes you strive and you strive and you strive and you realize you're not doing it for yourself. So then you start asking yourself questions like, what do I really want and what do I desire for my life? So I started figuring that out at an early in, in young adulthood. Yeah. And two, because something I've been learning about more recently is the intersection of capitalism with perfectionism and how that grind culture and that achievement goal oriented linear type thinking, that's a product of capitalism, which is yes. also like racism is underneath that too, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Racism comes in where not only are you inheriting a capitalist society, but then based on your race, you might have to try harder. Based upon one's gender, they might try harder, have to try harder to achieve the same goal. Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We've been we've actually been talking a lot about anti-racism and racism on the podcast. So I'm curious if you want to share anything about your experiences as a black male social worker coming up in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting what shaped my world is for the first 14 years of my life. I lived in almost total segregation. I, I was born on the west side of Chicago predominantly a Black community. And I went from there to Robert Taylor Public Housing. Then I went to Inglewood. Those were the first 14 years of my life. And then around 14, my mother told me that my father's heart was too big for one woman, meaning he cheated all the time. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, pretty, isn't it? that's a reframe. Was a nurse. Your, your father's heart was too big for one woman, so he was cheating. So mm. she left him. Actually, she left him earlier than that. So at 14, I went to move with my dad. So I went from segregation living in a neighborhood called Lakeview with every ethnic group under the sun in my high school. So that sort of shaped, all of that shaped mm. my view of things. So the 60s and civil rights and all of that shaped things. And so one way it impacted me as a social worker, I grew up in the 60s, was to always fight for social justice, was to always fight for social justice. So to this day, I still find myself as a social worker fighting for social justice. As a matter of fact, when I have a few, a little time to put this together, 
I actually came up with a plan as a social worker, a 14-step plan to reduce police shootings of unarmed African-Americans. What I'm about, and, it, and, and it's a good plan. I'm sure it is. Let me tell you what's wrong with these plans. Almost every plan that we hear about on television to reduce police shootings, the plans always begin after the officer has been hired. And by the time you're hired, you have the fraternal order of police behind you, communities that are sympathetic towards the police, even when they're wrong, right? And the legacy of over 90% of cases when police officers are accused of wrongdoings, they're let go. So my plan begins before the officer is even hired. Is it possible in the hiring process? Now, mind you, psychologists and social workers, especially psychologists, are involved in who in the decision who gets hired. So is there a way to spot people who would be shooters? Let's you in on another secret. Because there are lots of police officers that come out of the military, and my colleagues that do trauma work have told me that they've administered the ACEs to lots of police officers who have high childhood trauma, who choose to carry a gun. And so is there something that we can do to spot that to help them with their trauma so within volatile situations, they'll react different? So here's the great, something I've hardly told anyone, Sarah, and today is the day to share it. So by the time I was nine years old in the 60s, Metcar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Emmett Till, John F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, his brother, who was the um, Attorney General of the United States, Goodman, Swarman, and Cheney were all assassinated nationally by the time I was nine. In Chicago, where I lived on the South Side at the time, two Black Panthers, one named Fred Hampton and the other one named Mark Clark, the police entered their house without a warrant and shot and killed them. And I was a paper boy at the time, so I'm thinking, oh my God, if I knock on someone's door, they're going to think I'm the police and they're going to shoot and kill me. So Sarah, here's what I've shared with very few people that I knew as a little black youth growing up, as a young black boy growing up, that I was supposed to be in civil rights, but I didn't want to get assassinated. And so I became a social worker. But the way I dealt with that as a social worker was to always fight for our clients. That has been my advocacy for 38 years, right? And after George Floyd was killed, I decided that I no longer fear death. So I'm gonna put my plan out there naturally to help to reduce these police shootings. If the world takes it, wonderful. If they don't, well, I know I've put the effort in, do my part in order to increase the chances that this will stop happening. So as a social worker, you know, one of my students from Loyola told me that where I was working was in the Lawson YMCA, a place that wasn't physically clean as it is today, reeked of urine. And here I had one of my first students, a Loyola University of Chicago student, graduate student, and towards the end of our work together, I was her supervisor. She said, one of the pluses of working with you as my supervisor is you were able to teach me all the things that I would learn from a non-African-American supervisor. But I also learned the perspective of an African-American man for one whole year. Mm. She said that really impacted her career. So I bring that perspective. And it's not a homogenous perspective. There's lots of diversity there. But I also had those experiences as an African-American social worker of feeling that there are times when you've been passed over by promotion. So I've had those experiences too. I think those experiences of growing up Black helps me have a lot of empathy for clients who suffer. Absolutely. With my trauma history, plus growing up as a Black man. There's a doctor named Bacon that every clinician that will listen to your podcast should study the work of Dr. Bacon. And he speaks to the reason that some therapists engage clients better than others. And he said all the obvious stuff, like those who engage the best, have lots of empathy, warmth, and genuineness. But he talked about two other qualities, charisma and believability. 
So by charisma, he means like enthusiasm, genuine enthusiasm, mm-hmm. strong empathy, right? Energy that you bring to the therapy sessions, empathy, mm. understanding, but believability. He says that that some counselors get better results because their clients believe them. No amount of training in EMDR, DBT, CBT, et cetera, will help us engage clients using those techniques unless they believe in the relationship and believe in you. You know, the story that I tell people, the profound one, was a client that I worked with years ago. It was a group I was leading with teenage girls that were getting high every day to deal with their trauma. There were seven teenage girls. And between these seven girls, teenage girls, they had seven days of recovery. In other words, the only recovery they had was that day. And I heard that in the residential facility where they were receiving services, there was an emerging adult woman, 19 years old, in the same building with three years of recovery. So I selfishly thought what most therapists would think, we need her in this group so that they can catch her recovery. <laughs> yep. Recovery is contagious. So I called the therapist and I said, can she be in the group? Say, no, she's doing fine all by herself. I called the second time. Can she be in the group? No, she's doing fine all by herself. I called the third time and maybe there's something magical about three. Her therapist says, okay, she can be in the group. <laughs> Turns out she wasn't doing fine. She came to the group and said she was going to relapse that day. Our timing was impeccable. We could spend three hours just talking about synchronicity, how things line up for people in recovery. Absolutely. Second group she attended, she says, Mark, I want to be a social worker. I want to help girls. I said, you can do it. You can do it. You can be a social worker. You can help girls. She came back the following week and said, when you told me I could be a social worker, I cried all week. She says, I had four therapists before. You were the only one who told me that I could do it. And I told her, Sarah, there's only two things that qualify a person to do the work that you and I do as social workers. You're either an expert, meaning you went to school to study it, or you're a witness, you've lived it. And some of us are both. <laughs> yeah, she was a witness, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She was uh, abused, sexually abused by an uncle. So she was a witness and started using drugs to cope. When I said you could do it, she was in community college majoring in general studies. She declared a major social work, received an associate's degree in social work, went mm-hmm. to university, got a bachelor's degree in social work. March of like 2018, she said, come to the agency. I have a surprise for you. And she was wearing a sweatshirt from one of the most prestigious universities in the world and showed me a letter where they honored her and $50,000 in scholarship money to get her MSW. In June 15, 2019, I attended the ceremony and I saw her walk across the stage where she received a master's degree in social work. And after the ceremony, she said, how did you know I could do it? You were emphatic. How did you know? Here's how I knew. My mother, after she left my father, she married a man who was heroin addicted, who would beat her in front of us. And then she would beat the five of her kids in front of each other, especially my big sister. My father died smoking crack cocaine in 1986. I have my own trauma history. I had a son. My first son died in 2001. Here's how I knew she could do it and why she believed me. It was conviction. Because as a trauma survivor, if I survived all of that, Certainly, I thought she can get that MSW. So I tell people who do this work that woundedness, our own trauma that we overcome, recover, it gives us our resilience. And it's our resilience that gives us hope, not only in ourselves but in other people. So that's that's how I knew. And listeners, if you're not crying, you have a heart of stone because <laughs> I was tearing up through that story. And I mean, it just perfectly moves into the question of how do you feel about the term healer? Healer first, and then we'll talk about the wounded healer part. But how do you feel about the term healer as applied to what you do? I like it because it goes back. It's tribal. 
Yes, yes. And, and, yes. and tribes have always had healers. Yes. And we live in a tribal society where people are less connected than they were 100 years ago. 100 years ago, when a person said, um, I'm going home, he meant to the tribe. Now, when she says I'm going home, she means her house or her apartment. So we have this isolation. And so healers are important. Then you said wounded healers. Yeah. How do you feel about the term wounded healer? Yeah. So it's the woundedness that gives us our empathy and our compassion and the work that we do with other people. So I'm in agreement with that term. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. And the way that you're sharing your story and you're talking about this former client who then got her MSW. I mean, that's perfect description, encapsulation in my mind of, of the wounded healer. Yes. So I always wondered until I read uh, Dr. Bacon's work, why is it that like when I give talks, people say, I believe you and thus I'm inspired by your right. work. It's, it's right. trauma. It's working through trauma and having conviction and people saying, you know what? You said I can do it. I'm going to do it. It's that. It's, it's the woundedness. Sure. Yeah, right. As you were describing that too, the charisma and the believability, I'm just thinking about, because, you know, I remember I had a family member who had gone into treatment at one point and I, it was way before I even thought about being a therapist. Well, I thought about being a therapist, but before I became a social worker and I remember hearing the stories of what was happening and I was like, I want to do that. And my family member was like, you can't even smoke pot. No one's ever going to listen to you. And then when I actually was really successful with the addiction population, I kind of questioned like, why, why are they connecting with me? And what I came to is that we're connecting with the pain. Like I know what it's like to feel desperate. I know what it's like to feel suicidal and and all of these other things that maybe I don't have the, the drug connection, but I do know what the pain feels like. So I'm connecting with a part of your story. And that's when you, I think you said he was your cousin said, you can't even smoke pot. Yeah. Um, So Here's where like perfection comes in sometimes. It's helpful. I remember when I was really, really young, I tried to smoke a cigarette, really, really young. (laughs) And I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure it out. But as a perfectionist, (laughs) I didn't want to tell anybody I didn't know how to smoke a cigarette, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And the same with that whole marijuana era, right? I didn't know how. (laughs) As a perfectionist, how do you tell someone? Do you know how much that saved me? Right? Imagine if I started smoking cigarettes at 10 how right. much money I would have spent on cigarettes during during the course of a lifetime, sure. But people ask me to this day, you know, how people don't understand how I've committed my life to doing this work Yeah. without spending a lifetime getting high every day myself. I don't perfectly understand it. People wonder, how have you done that? And it's called the miracle of recovery. And I get excited every time I hear a recovery story or help to facilitate recovery. It's kept me going. Yeah, there's something so magical. And I, I was meeting with a client earlier today who has a pretty significant recovery story. And it's just, I get tingles. I get like, you know, this like fluttering in my heart when that happens. There's, I don't know, there's just nothing like it. I I feel like people who struggle with addiction who may call themselves alcoholics and addicts, but I'm not going to put them in that category unless they want themselves there. There's just something in order to experience, I think the height of joy, we have to know the depths of pain. Right. So someone told me that the end result of fun is financial distress and fatigue. You Hmm. stay out partying until three o'clock in the morning. You had fun and you're tired. You go to Vegas to gamble a bunch. You might have had fun, but you're broke. That we've discovered that happiness often comes out of tribulation and some kind of pain. The parent who cries after their special need child graduates from middle school or high school, they've gone through a lot. And now they're now they're experiencing some happiness. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, 
If it's okay, I want to talk a little bit about your plan for gun violence. And you don't have to like tell the details, but the thing that I was struck with as soon as you mentioned it was you're such a social worker, right? Because you are thinking about the person and environment and going to the, the source, right? Because if when we work with clients, we know that a lot of the behavior that's manifesting in the present day comes from their childhood. So if you think about the life cycle of a police officer, it's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant to start before they're hired. Okay. So yes, because that the, the fraternal of police is strong in a way that the American Rifle Association is strong. Yes. They can hire the top lawyers. Even that tragedy that everyone heard about, the death of McQuan McDonald when the Chicago police officer shot him 16 times. Mm-hmm. Do you know that I read that in the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police, when that guy was laid off, they put him to work, they gave him a job. So when you have that kind of thing happening, then you know you're starting kind of late if that's where you begin. So mm-hmm. I'll give you just a few pieces of it. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. So they have a test that they give police officers after they're hired, right? Where they have you, these images are passing across the screen and your task is to shoot at what what looks dangerous as it passes across the screen. What looks dangerous, shoot immediately, right? What they found is given this test that college graduates who will run this country one day and police officers are more likely to shoot on the screen passing an African-American male carrying flowers before they would shoot a white male with an automatic weapon, right? So what police departments tend to do is they give the test after you've been hired. What if they gave that test as a pre-employment screen Yeah, where they could determine before you even hired, are you trigger happy based upon the color of one's skin, right? Yeah. I put that on the front end. Every police officer, most of them throughout the country, have to take a polygraph test. Sarah, do you know how hard it is to beat a polygraph test? <laughs> I don't. It's not easy to beat a polygraph test. They ask about things like your arrest history your employment history, and they have you hooked up to the polygraph machine, right? And they can tell if you're lying or telling the truth, right? They ask about drug use history, recent in the past. They even ask questions about police officers like sexual history and drug use history, but nothing about race. As a pre-employment screen, have you ever harmed anyone physically because of the color of their skin? Mm. What about a question like that? Mm-hmm. Have you ever been a member of a hate group? Have you ever verbally abused someone based upon the color of their skin? You can catch this stuff early. And what about a psychological screen that measures implicit bias? Yes. And how about, Sarah, before officers are hired as a part of a physical exam, before they're hired? What if we administered the ACEs to learn about the police officer's trauma history? None of this may not disclude the officer from being hired, but at least we have information to work with. Right. 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 And they could direct him to therapy. Right. Earlier on, just like if you took a physical exam and you were going to be a police officer and they discovered that you have high blood pressure, it doesn't mean they wouldn't hire you. It's like you ought to look at this. And in the same way, this is what your agent says. Let's look at your trauma history. We want to make sure you have counseling early on. Mm. You might find yourself, you know, sitting on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So I'm, I'm working to put a lot of stuff on the front end. It's my plan. Brilliant. And this is the part of me that hid from, ran from the fact that when I was a little boy, I always thought I should work in civil rights because I remember when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I remember. Mm. I remember when Kennedy was assassinated. People think times are frightening now. They were scarier then. Was it? That's one question I wanted to ask you is comparing. Yeah, because right now who's getting murdered are African-Americans, but all of these leaders were getting murdered. You know how there were people that were distraught when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? Yeah. The hope he offered for the country. 
Yeah, that was the scariest decade. Mm. So how do you, what are you making of right now? And, you know, I, I don't want to be like, oh, predict the future, but because you lived through the 60s and saw all of that, where where are you with all of it right now? So I think about this from the perspective of the 20-something-year-olds. How might they be dealing with this? Because it's new. I've seen it before. So it's not new. So I have that experience. I consider what's happening right now, I call it the trifecta. What I mean by that is what happens when a pandemic leads to an economic recession, and at the same time, we have racial conflict, all happening at once. Let's add to that. A pandemic leading to an economic recession, 50 million Americans out of work, and then racial conflict, all that's happening. And at the same time, we're having a presidential election that some people fear even more than they fear COVID-19. And on top of all that, Three or four hurricanes are coming to us from the East Coast. So many at once. We even had a hurricane in Chicago. Who who would think that? And then we have wildfires coming from California and Oregon. They say the smoke reached New York. So all of this is happening at once. And in my mind, it took all three of these things, the first three things I mentioned, to see what we're seeing today. And what we're seeing today is 120 consecutive days of marches and protests, rioting, et cetera. In the 60s, we did not have that. If it were only COVID-19, we would stay quarantined at home, maybe listen to some music by DJ Nice while we dance around our home quarantine, or we'd make masks all day. If it were just an economic recession, we would look for part-time work. If it was just the killing of unarmed African-Americans, we would protest for about a week, and then we would wait for the results of the trial, and that would determine what we do next. When you put all three of these together, the formula is one plus one plus one equals 100. These are explosive times. I also think the hidden component out there, what's hidden that people are not talking much about, is that in the next 30 years or less, that every group in America will be a minority. And so I believe that a lot of racial tension today is based upon that. Yeah, I agree. If everyone's going to be a minority, then that can be really frightening. Right, right, because then white people do lose their power. Well, even like the push to like quickly like change the Supreme Court is that mm-hmm. if that Latino Hispanics are the fastest growing population. So if we're not going to have the numbers, then we have to control the courts. And there are social workers that have solutions to some of this stuff. Mm. There's a well-known social worker named Larry Davis from the University, I believe, St. Louis, Missouri, that talked about racial balance mm. and the role of social workers in, in helping people feel a sense of comfort when numbers start to change. I'll give you an example. You know, we're starting to see more and more cities that are becoming whiter and more suburban communities becoming more people of color, right? So think about a school district in a suburban area where the demographics of the students are shifting, right? The teachers remain the same, right? Mm. You have two or three groups in there who are experiencing tension and conflict between them. Who better knows how to lead groups where there's tension in terms of racial conflict than social workers? It's our job. So if we can do that on the micro level, then we can do that on the micro level. So we'll be needed more and more as the demographics begin to shift. And I want to say, too, that because social work is predominantly white females (laughs) and liberal white females actually can be quite, they can be contributors to the problem instead of people who provide solutions. So what I always encourage the listeners to do too, is do your own work around it. Like we, we all have to do our own, like work with our internalized racism and because we're not able to support other people through that work until we recognize it within ourselves. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I get a lot of feedback from listeners who are either already in school to get their their BSWs or their MSWs or or their counseling degrees or people who thought that maybe, oh, like I couldn't be a therapist, but now that I hear about the vulnerability of all the people on your show, I can be one. So I just always think it's so important, again, to direct it back to like, we've got to do our own work. We just have to do our own work. Yes, that makes perfect sense to me. Yes. Yeah. Like I work with, I have some, some uh, black colleagues and I, we talk, so do you ever get angry about racism? Sure. Well, how do you deal with that and still do your work so that you don't want to show up in spaces and be filled with rage? You're trying to do some like diversity work. And to a person, what they say is they have an inner circle of other black men or black women, and they do their work around their anger and rage so they can show up in a space where they're helping and come from a loving space. And everybody needs that space. Community. Exactly. Right. And like earlier, the tribal aspect of it, that's something that we've lost in our society. And I believe part of the reckoning that we're all going through right now on all the levels is to remember that individualized society is not working. Right. <laughs> it's making rich people richer and the rest of us feel oppressed. <laughs> so we've got to come together. Yeah. So I've been reading this Harvard study that when they asked people 20 years ago, how many people can you count on in the crisis? It was like seven and the numbers continue to mm-hmm. shrink. And so mm-hmm. today when people are asked that question, it's like zero. And mm-hmm. so then Facebook becomes our friend. I told my, my teenagers that there are people who can have a million friends on Facebook and have no friends, right? Or people live for the next like or the next like tweet. So in an ideal world, we would come back to community. Well, what for your own personal healing journey, what has been, I don't want to say necessarily most impactful, but anything that you want to share in terms of of the work that you've done on yourself? Yeah, so therapy. Even when I was a graduate student, my field instructor said, Mark, you're naturally good hearing people. But you could really hear people if you've, if you've been heard yourself, right? And so she suggested therapy. So being heard helped me a lot. The anonymous groups. I'm the person who's not in alcohol drug recovery that has like five years of uninterrupted 12-step recovery. Because one of my jobs was that I, I was a, a detox counselor years ago. And I had to take the clients who were in detox to either an Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous group five days a week for five years. <laughs> That's so great. I was healing. Right. Yeah. And then getting into the other types of support groups where families were are concerned. Midlife, getting involved in men's groups and African-American men's groups and healing from childhood trauma in those safe spaces through those groups have been a part of my journey, along with a lot of journaling. You know how they say that journaling could be as effective as some therapies? I believe it just through my own journaling. I believe in watching the rappers, too, because all yeah, right? rappers is therapeutic journaling and they're healing through their own lyrics. And so that's been really important. And as I get older, just being introspective, learning from mistakes, being my own therapist, all of the above. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like over the years, I've kind of developed this like external observer that can be watching what I'm doing and thinking like, oh, look, isn't that interesting? Or, hi, huh, I wonder if Sarah's going to make this choice. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's, that's a real gift to have. And that's what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Being able to look at things, make observations, ask myself questions. What's the reason you did that? We literally can almost become our own therapist. Right, right. I think that one has to have a certain sense of, well, let's see. 
I'm trying to think because there's some people that if we say you can become your own therapist, that is probably not a good thing for that person to hear. But (laughs) but there's a fearlessness involved with the willingness to truly look at oneself and look at the, the stuff that we when we're causing harm and when we're harmed, both sides of the coin, right? You know, Maslow said that if we were all striving to be at our best, then we would be able to look at ourselves mm-hmm. clearer, right? I just think connected to that question that you had asked earlier about my own healing, you know, the greatest tragedy of my life was in 2001, where my first child died. It was as bad as anybody listening would think it is. It was really that bad. And I didn't think I could ever do my work again. So that was the healing of healing. We went into the own personal phone book and called all the friends. And Mm. and that was really the best time, as painful as that period was for me, it was the best time to be a drug counselor because we're a very hugging field. You ask drug counselors what they miss while we're in all isolation, they would say they miss the hugs. Yes. What did they miss about going to conferences that they missed the hugs? There were 250 certified alcohol and drug abuse counselors who attended my son's funeral. And I hugged all 250 of them. You ever hugged 250 people? Not at one time. <laughs> it, nearly killed, it nearly killed me, but it breathed life into me. Right. And it made me remember what the philosopher said. It's better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. So two years later, we had another child, which was the most courageous decision that we ever made. When you have one die and you have another one, he's a freshman in college right now. And so it's a beautiful decision. But what helped me with all of that is when our son died, We received in the mail about 250 carts of condolences, about 50 plants in the mail. I gave away 49 plants and kept the cactus. I like the odds. And 50 books on grief. So I studied grief for about a decade and became a grief counselor. And every time I help someone with their grief, my own grief diminishes a bit. That's the secret there, to reach out and help someone else. And I've written some articles on grief therapy and grief counseling. And every time someone tells me I read that article, and I heal a little more and a little more each time. Right. Mm. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. And I just I just want to tell you how personally impactful you've been on my life. And I put you and Bob Cardi in the same category of people who have been so generous and giving to younger up and comers like myself. I really can't thank you enough for being willing to be a mentor and a support. And I just, every time I get to hear you speak, you know, and today is no exception. I learned so much. Well, thank you so very much. And I have a mentor who I think is the greatest mentor of all mentors named William White. And he told me, I asked him, would you like, what do I owe you for mentoring? He says, nothing. He says, what's going to happen is that people newer to the field are going to come around they're going to need some help and help them. Yeah. And I think that anyone who's striving in the direction towards reaching whatever potential they have, and rarely do we get there, a natural offshoot of that is they're going to want to make sure that the next generation is prepared to do this work. And there's something that I see in you, of course, and there's something that Bob sees in you, and we've talked about it. Mm. And and then we, we know that you have all of those clinical abilities, all of the leadership that you do. And you're an excellent teacher. Thank you. So who wouldn't want to give and invest in in you? Thank you. Well, it's funny as you say that too, the the idea of passing it on. I was having a supervision session with one of my staff members today. And essentially, that's what I was doing is I was passing along to her what was given to me so freely. And that's, I don't know, in in a world where there's so much scarcity, when you do find generosity, it's just really beautiful and really special. 
So can I share one other thing um, with Please. you? One of the advantages of like getting older is that you can kind of like look back and just sort of take a look at what's most important. So here's what I want to share with you. And this is coming for you. Hopefully it'll be a while. <laughs> In 2018, after being a perfectionist forever and pushing to try to accomplish things, I woke up one day in 2018, August 2018, and said, you know what? You don't have to accomplish anything else. You don't have to. All my life, I was striving. Kindergarten, I was trying to get the first grade. Eighth grade, I was trying to get to a good high school. I was always reaching for these goals. But you, you've done what you, what you need to do. You can accomplish more, but you don't have to. Yeah. I hadn't felt freer since, since preschool once I reached <laughs> that conclusion. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember hearing Billy Joel being interviewed, I think, by Jimmy Kimmel, one of the late night talk show hosts. And uh, the late night talk show host said, Elton John says you should do more albums. And Billy Joel said, and I think Elton John should do fewer albums. <laughs> and then he said, I've already said it, so let's let someone else say it. And I got it. I've been teaching all these years. I've said it. Let someone else say it. So then once you reach that conclusion, then you become excited about the next generation saying it. And then just when you think you retire, <laughs> then COVID, an economic recession, and, and, and racial conflict hits. And we social workers, we're always social workers. So I'm helping again. So it's these are good times mm. in the midst of bad times to be able to be helpful. You're just a treasure. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Do you want to share with people where they can find you if they want to connect with you and learn more yeah. about your work? I have email. It's on the mark. 25 at AOL.com. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Why does he have, a, have AOL? Because with all this work, I still have abandonment issues. I'm a child from an addicted home where there was domestic violence, child abuse. I have AOL, the familiarity of AOL. But I also have email as well. I have a website that has lots of counseling articles. www.onthemarkconsulting25.com. If you want to know about that 25, my father played basketball at Crane High School. His number was 25. And every time I say my email address or every time I say my web address, I think about my father. Mm -hmm. He died about two decades ago of crack cocaine addiction. It hurts less every time I remember his name through my email address. Then also, I'm the curator of the Online Museum of African-American Addictions Treatment and Recovery. That is a long address, but I'll give it to you. There's very little written and literature about mm -hmm. African-Americans in recovery, so I created a museum. www.museumofafricanamericanaddictionsrecovery.org. That's awesome. That just reminded me, I met a person at a conference randomly, and he was posting something online, and I asked him for more information about it, and he sent me one of your articles. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, that guy's my mentor. I know. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Sarah, for saying that. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for being here today. I know listeners are going to get so much out of this episode. And thank you for what you do. And I'm, and I'm looking forward to like being a witness to it and being a fan mm -hmm. of it. I'm excited to know what you're going to do. Thank you. Especially when you look at all that you're doing now already. I'm excited to see it. Ooh, I'm trying to slow down a little bit, but yeah, it's going to happen. Yes. The momentum is moving. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank today. you. Enjoy the rest of your evening. You too. Thanks so much to Mark for being a guest on our show today. To learn more about Mark Sanders, please go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. 
Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye-bye. Bye.